we're going to re-engage our series in Job called Sovereign Suffering. Two Sundays ago, we wrapped up Job's response to Eliphaz's second speech in chapter 17. Uh, we looked at four things, if you recall. We looked at Job's... Thank you, sir. We looked at Job's regression. We looked at Job's request, his reproach, and his resignation. And we identified the main theme in chapter 17, which is hopelessness, and we paralleled that hopelessness with Israel at the time of Jesus' birth into our current situation in America with all the election stuff and everything. And we learned that Christmas is about Christ and Christ is about hope. And if we repent and trust in Him alone for our salvation, we'll have all the hope we will ever need. That was the main part of that message. In the next section, Bildad, Job's second friend, responds to Job and gives his second speech. He uses poetry to paint a terrifying picture of hell because he believes that's where Job is about to go to. While the 18th century French philosopher Voltaire was on his deathbed, he begged his physician to somehow extend his life. He said, I am abandoned by God and by man. I will give half of what I'm worth if you will give me six more months to live. The doctor replied, Sir, you cannot live another six weeks. To which Voltaire responded, Then I shall go down into hell and you will go with me. Soon thereafter, Voltaire died in a Christless state and entered hell. The wicked perish without hope because they die without God. Sinners without God have nothing to hang on to when encompassed by death. Far worse, they have no one to hang on to them. No savior, no redeemer, no conqueror of death, no conqueror of hell. And this is how Bildad believed Job would face death, basically alone. He was convinced that Job, as one of the wicked, would die in empty despair and go straight to hell. It is said that Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is one of the most frightening sermons ever preached, and I tend to agree. I've listened to Max McLean's reading of it. It's, it's pretty terrifying, but guess what? Bildad's second speech here, as recorded in this chapter, it's pretty fight, frightening as well. It's terrifying. It's high on the scary sermons list. It's on par with Jonathan Edwards, no doubt. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 18. Job chapter 18. We will be looking at the entire chapter this morning, all 21 verses. It's befitting that we pray before we get to work. Father, we yield and humble ourselves once more here in your presence, and we ask, Lord, that you tutor us, that you teach us, that you counsel us from your word, that you open our hearts and, and ears and hearts and minds and eyes to the truth, to the gospel, to the reality of hell. Lord, and give us discernment, give us knowledge, give us this revelation from Job 18. And Lord, may we not be just mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word. It could be, Lord, that you call some in this room to repentance today, others that you sanctify. And we pray that the overwhelming majority here come to love 
their Savior, the Lord Jesus, even more when they realize what they've been rescued from. Lord, we commit our time to you. We submit to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Going to pick up where we left off two Sundays ago. We will begin at verses 1 through 4. Again, chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. This is what Bildad says after Job gave uh, his response to Eliphaz. Job, uh, Bildad says this next. Then Bildad, Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, here it is, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or the rock be removed out of its place? Bildad begins his second speech with strong words of criticism. His opening line here is, is nearly identical to his opening line in his first speech. Here, again, 18, chapter 18, verse 2, it says, How long will you hunt for words? That's how he opens up this speech. Back in chapter 8, verse 2, he says, How long will you say these things? It's almost an identical beginning here. And then Bildad tells Job to consider, and then we will speak. This was his way of saying, Job, you need to become a better listener. You're not a good listener. You like to talk and talk and talk, and what you need to do is stop speaking so that we can speak. We're the experts on these matters. You need to shut up and listen to us. This is what he's saying when he says consider. He then criticizes Job for regarding them as stupid cattle. <laughs> it must have been Job's rebuke back in chapter 17, verse 10, that triggered Bildad here, when Job basically called them dummies. He said, I shall not find a wise man among you. No matter, no matter what you say, how many times you come back to me with all your retorts and, and responses and rebukes and criticism and all this counsel, no matter what you do, no matter how many times or frequency, it's irrelevant, it doesn't matter because I will never, ever, ever find a wise man among you. That's his way of calling them dummies. And in verses 3 and 4 here in, in chapter 18, it's as if Bildad is saying this, you think we're dumb, clumsy oxen? You think we're the dumb animals? You're the one who's destroying yourself in your anger. You're the one who's demanding that the earth reorient itself to accommodate your foolish beliefs that the wicked sometimes go unscathed and the righteous sometimes suffer. How preposterous. You're the dumb, clumsy ox. This is what they're saying to him. And in the following verses, Bildad seeks to prepare wicked Job for his future destination. Sheol or hell. And there is no appeal in the text here. There is no call to repentance in the text, which seems to indicate that Bildad is less interested in Job's rescue and more interested in revenge. He is incredibly agitated after listening to Job. He's mad as a hornet now. And it looks as if he wants Job to pay the price for insulting them and for trying to tear down their traditions, for trying to tear down their theology. And what he does, essentially, is he makes six observations about hell in verses 5 through 21. Six observations. Here's the first one that he makes. Number one, hell is the place of total darkness. We see this in verses 5 and 6. Bildad says, 
Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. Okay, this is pure poetry again. What Bildad does through his poetry is he employs a fourfold repetition of words for light to convey a simple truth. That when a man is wicked, he is destined for darkness. His light will be put out. His flame of fire does not shine. The, the light in his tent is dark, and his lamp above him is put out. These are all the examples he gives. Light is often used in Scripture as a metaphor for life. And that is the meaning here. When Bildad says the light of the wicked is put out, he is referring to them being put to death or to their death, to them dying. Now, we use a similar metaphor uh, in professional sports. When a boxer knocks out his opponent, we call it what? Lights out. Light is a metaphor for consciousness. If the boxer, the opponent is conscious, the lights are on. If he's unconscious, the lights are off. And we use another variation to describe the aloof, the absent-minded, even daydreamers. Look at Fred. The lights are on, but nobody's home. You've heard that. You've used that. It's been used against me many times, because so often there is nobody home here. In Bildad's scenario, the absence of light is the absence of life. No light, no life. Bildad is saying that the light or life of the wicked is extinguished in death, and in hell there is not even a glimmer of light. This is what he's teaching. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, and he called hell outer darkness. Matthew 8, 12, and Matthew 22, verse 13, and again repeated in Matthew 25, verse 30. At the end of his previous speech, Job spoke of Sheol as the place where he must make his bed in darkness, right? Chapter 17, verse 13. At the end of his speech in chapter 10, he spoke of having a one-way ticket to the land of darkness and deep shadow, where light is as thick as darkness. Those are Job's own words. And what is going on here is that Bildad is essentially agreeing with Job. It was as if he was saying, indeed, this is where you're going, Job. You're going to the abode of the wicked, to hell, the place of total darkness. I concur. I agree with you 100%. That's where you're going. That's what he's saying. Number two, hell is the place of inescapable punishment. We see this in verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10 says, His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. The dominant metaphor here is pretty obvious. It's a trap or the trap. In verses 8 through 10, we see three types of traps. In verse 8, we see a ground net that is probably hidden by leaves and debris. And as the wicked man walks along the path, he steps on its mesh and it springs up and closes all around him like a bag. In verse 9, we see a foot snare. As this wicked man walks along the path, he steps on this trap and it closes around his heel and locks tight like a bear trap. And then in verse 10, we see a leg noose. 
As the wicked man walks down the path, both of his feet enter this trap, and it closes around his ankles and whips him up into the air, upside down, feet first, and it leaves him dangling there like bait on a fish hook. You've seen all of these types of traps in either cartoons or movies. Jumanji's probably a good place to start. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's not a good place to start. But verse 7 here is the key. Verse 7 is the key. Here is a man with strong steps, a man with power and confidence. He is a wicked man in prosperity, just living his life with all of his financial power and his cultural prowess. But as he walks along life's path, his strong steps will be shortened and he will come to a standstill. Why? Because his own schemes will throw him down like a trap. In other words, his sins will lead to death, Romans 5.12, right? Because the wages of sin is death. And when he dies, what is Bildad conveying? He will find himself in hell. The unavoidability of these hidden traps that Bildad lists here illustrates the inescapable punishment of hell. The wicked man cannot avoid judgment just as a hiker cannot avoid hidden traps along the path. He will be thrown down for his sins, and he will not escape punishment in hell. That's what Bildad is conveying through his poetry. And then the parallel to Job, Job felt that he was being hunted and trapped by God. Chapter 10, verse 16, chapter 13, verse 27, that he had been hedged in and unable to escape. Chapter 3, verse 21. What is Bildad doing here? He is essentially agreeing with Job. It was as if he was saying, indeed, your strong steps have been shortened, Job. You're that prosperous, wicked man, and, and your strong steps have been shortened. You have been snared by God because of your sin. The inescapable punishments now await you. This is what he's conveying. Number three. Hell is the place of insatiable terror. We see this in verses 11 through 14. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. Terror actually brackets this section. It's the bookends. This little paragra paragraph begins with the word terrors and ends with it. The word terrors has overtones of the demonic. It is associated with darkness and Sheol, the place of the dead, or hell. Terrors are almost like evil spirits bringing the fear of Sheol into human hearts. That's what's meant here in the Hebrew. I'm reminded of the Black Riders of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Remember them? They were pretty terrifying. The phrase, his strength is famished, is not in reference to Job's hunger, but to the appetite of the king of terrors, which we see at the end of verse 14. Calamity is ready and waiting for the wicked man to stumble into his trap. And when he does, it will start to consume him, both his skin, the outer protection of his existence, and his limbs. Now the expression, the firstborn of 
death refers to death as a humanoid or human-like creature. What comes to mind? The Grim Reaper, right? That's how death is pictured. The Grim Reaper is a mythological figure dating back to the 14th century. It was during the Black Death, the bubonic plague, that Europeans first coined the phrase Grim Reaper. Like the Grim Reaper, death is visiting house after house after house. If you know anything about that history, one-third of all the Europeans died because of that plague. That's a real pandemic, folks. That's a real pandemic. And there were no shutdowns, mind you. When the firstborn of death, the Grim Reaper, tears the wicked man away from his tent, it drags him off to face the king of terrors, which is what? A metaphor for hell. Hell is the king of terrors because it is the most terrifying place in all creation, if you could even actually call it a place. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, but it does, but it kind of sits in its own reality. Hell is the most terrifying place. It was prepared for the devil and the demons, Matthew 25, verse 41. Hell is not a resort where the forces of darkness reside and spend their time tormenting the wicked. You understand what I just told you? This is how hell has been taught from many pulpits, that it's some kind of a luxury resort for the devil, and he's just down there putting it on all the wicked, evil people. No, hell is a place of torment for the devil. It is a place of everlasting punishment for the forces of darkness. Hell actually terrifies the devil and the demons. Did you know this? Hell terrifies the devil and the demons. Yes. It's not a place where they want to go. You want to wear what happened in Luke chapter 8, verse 28 through 33? When Legion, that, that man who was filled with multiple demons, when, when he was confronted by Jesus and Jesus was actually speaking with the demons who were into him. Are you not familiar with this story which illustrates Satan and the demons' terror of hell? This is what Legion says to, G, to, to Jesus. He says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Don't cast us into the bottomless pit. Bottomless pit is translated as Hades, which would be Sheol in Hebrew. They're terrified that Jesus has come to judge them prematurely and cast them into hell. And what do they say to Jesus? We have another option here, Jesus, son of the most high God. Why don't you cast us over into those swine over there? And what does he do? He casts them into the swine. They go over the hill. They all drown then the demons probably find themselves in the place they did not want to go to, the place of torment and torture for them. If not, they move to another subject. Now, what makes hell the king of terrors? That's a strong statement, the king of terrors. What makes it the king of terrors? Well, I can tell you it's not its darkness. It's not its fires and how darkness and fires coexist there and there's still darkness. I don't know. But the Bible teaches that both are there. What makes it the king of terrors is not its darkness, it's not its fires, it's not its sounds of weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Those things are terrifying to me, but it's not those things that make it so terribly terrible. It is the dreadful presence of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. Hell is not separation from God. 
There's no such thing as separation from God. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. You cannot separate yourself from God. Under no circumstances has anyone ever been separated from the literal presence of God. It cannot happen. God is there in hell. He is omnipresent. Hell is separation, not from God, but from His good side and grace. That's what it is. And some might think, well, gosh, I think that's happening throughout the world today. There's such tragedies and things happening. Believe it or not, the providential grace of God is still operating in those zones. For him to to remove his good side somehow, I don't know how he does this because he's immutable, but somehow in hell he's fully present but in full wrath. The torture that we see against Jesus on the cross is the same torment and torture sinners in hell experience. They bear the wrath of God in hell. God is there, and there is no grace, no good side. In hell, God is a merciless, merciless tormentor against the devil, against the demons, against the wicked. Hebrews 10, verse 29. It is literally a terrible thing, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in judgment in hell unimaginable, unspeakable torment. The torments of hell are insatiable. That means that they cannot be quenched. They're unending. Dives' terrible thirst was never quenched, right? The illustration Jesus gave in Luke 16, 24 to 26, he pleads with Abraham to deliver him from that place or just to give him a drop of water. No drop of water was given. Torment upon torment upon torment. Never-ending thirst, never-ending burning, never-ending judgment. And Job's skin, look at the parallel. Job's skin and bones have been cruelly attacked, right? Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He feels that the terrors of God are arrayed against him. He said this, chapter 6, verse 4. He cannot sleep at night and his fear is incessant. Chapter 7, verse 4. He is in a constant, these are all the things that he said. He is in a constant state of terror, chapter 9, verse 34. He is terrified by God's angry majesty, chapter 13, verse 11 and verse 21. What's going on here? Bildad is essentially agreeing with Job. It was as if he was saying, indeed, the firstborn of death is coming for you. The signs are clear. Look at your flesh. The reaper is about to knock on the soul, your, your soul's door. He's coming for you. The reaper is on his way, Job. He is about to take you to the abode of the wicked, to the, to the king of terrors, hell. This is what he's saying. Number four, hell is the place of total disillusion. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Bildad says this next, in his tent dwells that which is none of his, sulfur is scattered over his habitation, his roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. This insatiable terror that we're talked about here is accompanied by total disillusion of self. The dominant image here is fire. Eliphaz has already introduced this idea in chapter 15, verse 30, and what Bildad does here is he develops it a little bit more vividly. Verse 15a should be rendered, fire resides in his tent. 
that would be a better rendering. And then we see the word sulfur here. Sulfur is called brimstone, the hot burning substance that gives us the expression fire and brimstone. That immediately makes us think of Sodom and Gomorrah. The wicked man's, the point is really the wicked man's tent and habitation is utterly destroyed by fire. It is a, a fire that erupts from below as the fires of Sheol did for the sons of Korah. Numbers 16, 31 through 35. You remember the story how the ground opened up and they fell into the pit and fire came up and consumed them and all the sons of Korah. It was a dastardly, terrible thing that happened. Pure judgment from God. And this destruction that we're talking about here by fire, it is total and it is irreversible because it burns up what? Both his roots and his branches. It's a comprehensive destructive fire. And Jesus used the same frightening image when speaking of hell. Just as fire and sulfur rained down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Luke 17, 29 through 30. Hell is talked about a lot in Scripture. As I said, Jesus talked about it more than anyone else. Hell is the place where the fire is not quenched. Mark chapter 9, verses 47 and 48. It is actually called the eternal fire, Matthew 24 or 25, 41. You're familiar with Jonathan Edwards' writing. He was an amazing guy, and back in his day in the 1750s, people were arguing that hell was not forever, that God would eventually deliver people out of hell. Then why is hell called an eternal fire? If a person's existence in etern in is, is for all eternity in heaven, then the exact same is true of that of hell for the wicked. The righteous man experiences an eternity, an everlasting life in heaven, just as the wicked man experiences an everlasting life in hell. Hell is permanent, it is fixed, it is eternal. Job was at the heart of a bustling organic society at one time. He was the leading farmer in the East, chapter 1, verse 3, where it says he was the greatest of all the people of the East. We can deduce from that that he was easily the greatest farmer. His ranches and farms were just bigger than anyone else's. But what happened? The fire of God and the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans destroyed his farms, destroyed his crops, destroyed his livelihood, chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Bildad assumed that Job's terrible losses meant that he was on the broad road to hell, Matthew 7.13, the place of total disillusion where the wicked have nothing, no wealth, no loved ones, no health. Number five, hell is the place of terrible separation, verses 17 through 20. Yes, I know I just said it's not a place of separation from God. We're talking about separation here from other things or other people. Verses 17 through 20, Bildad says this next, His memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the east." The wicked are a blot on the landscape. They will and, and must be taken away into another place to hell. 
and this will be complete. Not a speck of their dust will be left behind. Bildad conveys this in the images of their perishing memory, their perishing name, their perishing posterity, and their perishing progeny, right? All of those things, everything that they're about, all of it will be removed. There will be no residue. The wicked man's estate will have no surviving family members. This is what he's saying. And this actually happened to Voltaire. He wrote extensively against Christianity and against the Bible and in 1776 of all the years, in 1776, he predicted that in less than 100 years after his death, there would be no Bibles on earth, no Bibles except for just a few old dusty Bibles, right? Old ESVs, they weren't around back then. Old dusty Bibles in some museums. That's what he prophesied. That's what he boasted about. That's what he said. Look, this whole thing is just going to die off after I'm dead. And within 50 years after his death, the very house in which he once lived and wrote became a storehouse for Bibles, became a storehouse for gospel tracts. The printing presses he used to print his irreverent works were used, literally was used to print Bibles. Voltaire died and he went to hell and his estate didn't go to his progeny. It went to the Evangelical Society of Geneva. This is, that's a classic example of what Bildad is saying. We read elsewhere in Scripture that God, what, blots out the name of the guilty forever and ever. Where did we just see that? Psalm 9, verse 5, that's what Bruce read. This blotting out, this erasing of this person and their existence and their progeny and everything, it is a judgment of God. It is a, a terrible thing to be extinguished and obliterated from life on earth. But that is the fate of the wicked. The paradox of hell, and this is interesting, the paradox of hell is that it is the place that is not a place. It is a place with no stability, no center. It is separated from our reality because it is its own reality. There is a, a partial analogy with the way Babylon became the place symbolizing scattering, the place that is not a place. When a wicked man is, is trapped by his own evil, sucked down into death and hell, everything about him is dissolved in eternal flames, and there will be nothing left of him on earth. With the death of his children... Job feels he is well on his way to being wiped off the face of the earth. Chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. And what's happening here? Bildad is essentially agreeing with Job. It was as if he was saying, Indeed, you have been separated from your children. You've been separated from your neighbors. You've been separated from your peers at the city gate where you guys used to act in wisdom and, and kind of rule our community. You've been separated from all of that but you will soon go down to the place of total separation to hell where your memory, your name, your posterity, and your progeny will perish forever. That's what you're headed toward, Job. Number six, hell is the place for the wicked. Our last verse, verse 21. 
Bildad says, surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Bildad rests his case by asserting that this terrible place of total darkness, inescapable punishment, insatiable terror, total dissolution, and terrible separation, hell is the the dwelling place of all unrighteous people who do not know God, a.k.a. the wicked. Bildad does not spell out the application of his terrifying sermon, but I think it's clear. Job is already experiencing in anticipation the terrors of hell. This is evidence of his wickedness and proves he is going to hell. And like I said, which is just equally tragic, is the absence of any sort of appeal here, any sort of call to repentance. Why did Bildad leave out that component? Because he feels that it is too late for Job. There's no sense in calling him to repentance. He's doomed. All the calamity that has fallen upon his life, the the loss of his, his health family and wealth family and health just testifies that he's wicked on his way to hell. In fact, he's experiencing a hell on earth. And sometimes those who go off to hell for all eternity, the literal place, they experience a type of hell on earth before they get there. I'm not going to call you to repentance, Job, because it's too late for you. You're doomed. You're going to destruction. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late. He believes that Job's foot shall soon slip. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. And Job will tumble down into death and hell where he will be tormented day and night and his memory and his name, his posterity, his progeny, all that he is, all that he was involved with, every, every aspect of it, it will all burn in eternal flames in hell where he will suffer. This is what he believes. According to Bildad, this is Job's fate. Heck of a friend. If, if Job, I'm telling you, when I go to heaven and I see Job there, I don't know if I'm going to see Bildad and the others there, but if I'm there, I'm going to say, did you stay friends with them after the ordeal? That was a bonehead move. But then again, Job would say, I gave them mercy, and I'm like, I shouldn't even be here in heaven. <laughs> I mean, these guys, this is just, this, he is trying to send his good buddy to hell. Closing. Was Bildad correct about Job? No, not even close, not even close. Job was blameless and upright, not wicked and headed for hell, right? We learned this. This is how the the book opens. It establishes the, the actual position between Job and God. Job was in the right. He didn't suffer because he was in the wrong. He suffered because he was in the right. Because guess what? The righteous suffer according to God's causes and plans and will. He was a righteous man, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 3. So Bildad was dead wrong about Job. I almost entitled this sermon, Job in the Hands of an Angry Bildad. Probably should have. 
It's because that's really what's going on here. Was Bildad, he was wrong about Job. Was he correct about the wicked? Absolutely, 100%. 100%. He has accurately described the fate of the wicked. Everything he said about the wicked is true. It is true. All of the suffering and this torment and, and these traps, all of it, all of it is true. It's all true. And yet, unlike Bildad, we at RHC refuse to preach condemnation without redemption. We are armed with the mighty gospel, right? The gospel is more powerful than death and hell. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the only thing in all creation that can deliver a wicked person from death and hell. The only thing. It is the good news that the Lord Jesus Christ came to live for our righteousness, came to die to to pay for our sins. What a great debt. Came to be buried came to to rise from the grave on the third day. What? Victorious over sin, over Satan, over death, over hell, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. And if we repent and believe in his person and work, guess what? We are delivered from death and hell. Yes, you heard me say it. You will be delivered from death. Christians don't die. They fall asleep. And to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. Who you are on the inside, your consciousness, your awareness of all your surroundings and what's going on, that transports right to the presence of Jesus at death. There is no death for us. Only the body dies. But the soul flies away to Christ. And when he returns, that soul will be rejoined with a glorified body and we will reign with him on earth. There is no death for us. There is no hell for those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Everything that Bildad has said, it doesn't apply to us, although it's quite sobering and we need to be mindful of these things and we should certainly preach hell. We're not wicked if we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We're the opposite of wicked. We are righteous. We have been clothed in his righteousness. God sees not our sins and imperfections. He sees the righteousness of Christ, and he has justified us. If we repent and believe in his person and work, we are delivered from death and hell. And yet if we refuse, if we reject Christ, if we continue on in that disobedience, we will eventually die in our sins. We will be judged. We will go down into hell. We will experience everything that Bildad listed here. We will experience total darkness, inescapable punishment, insatiable terror, total disillusion, the loss of all things, and terrible separation in the dreadful presence of the living God, not absence of him. The punishment that Christ bore on the cross will be similar to the wicked in hell. Christ bore it for those who repent and believe, not for those who don't. And I say if we are 
in Christ by grace through faith, by the miracle of rebirth in these things. It's the only way. What should we do? We should rejoice and live for God's glory. Why? Because we have been rescued from everything that Bildad is describing. Do you realize what you've been saved from? The more that we come to realize what we've been saved from, the more that we're going to love Christ and live for Him. We are adopted sons and daughters in the hands of the merciful, gracious God. This salvation, this rescue from all of these things that Bildad listed, it's quite extraordinary. It ought to prompt us and motivate us, those who are in Christ, to live for Him, to be daring for Him, to be bold for Him, to pursue purity and holiness for Him. Christ, in, in a sense, bore these things that Bildad is talking about. God treated the perfect Christ like the wicked so that you could escape that. We are in Christ. We should rejoice and live for God's glory. We have been rescued. If we are outside of Christ, what should we do? We should repent and trust in Him alone for our salvation because death and hell are not a joke. I know people... Treat it like a frivolous subject today. It's funny. Voltaire, I'll just go to hell. You have no idea what you're agreeing to, pal. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. We should repent and, and believe in Christ right now at this very moment by God's grace. Don't be a fool like Voltaire. Do not mock the truth. That's what he did. He mocked it. Many a faithful Christian preached the truth to him, and how did he respond to it? Well, that's not for me. That's not my truth. He mocked it. He ridiculed the gospel, the message that saves. Believe or perish. That's it. That's it. Believe or perish. It's that simple. It's that simple.